Psalm 9. And we're going to be looking at the first eight verses of this psalm, which we will be also singing later in praise to the God of heaven. As we said earlier before the reading of Genesis chapter 3, there's much discussion about the subject of war. And war horrifies us all as it should. It is a horrible experience for anybody to go through. It brings much suffering for those involved. Suffering that we can hardly imagine in parts of the West. And as we see war taking place in various parts of the world, especially at the moment in Ukraine, we ask the question, how is peace possible? If you turn on your radio for long enough, there'll be questions of how can we make this stop? How can we bring about peace and stability? In our psalm that we're going to look at here this morning, this on this Sabbath day, it's not about a war between Ukraine and Russia. It's about a war with far older origins, with a far longer history. It's a, a war that goes back 6,000 years. A war that began far before or long before any of us were born. A war that involves every single one of us. No matter our age, no matter our nationality, and no matter our status. This war involves us all. And this war began with sin, as we saw earlier, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. There's that enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So as we look at this psalm, how is peace possible? How is peace possible? And it is only through one that we would have victory. It is only through one victor, one conqueror, conquering the hearts of sinners who will bow the knee to Christ. It is for those who know him. Come, I say, dear friends, here this morning. Believers in Jesus Christ, come and learn of our Savior. Let us be comforted this morning in this psalm. Let it give comfort to our souls. No matter what is going on around us, victory is assured. So, Psalm 9, verses 1 to 8, let us hear God's holy and infallible word. I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of all your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at your presence. For you have maintained my right and my cause. You sat on the throne judging in righteousness. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. O enemy, destructions are finished forever. 
And you have destroyed cities, even their memory has perished. But the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness. And he shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word. The Psalms are truly wonderful, aren't they? And they're, they're, why are they so wonderful? They, they grip the hearts of the true believer in Jesus Christ. Because they speak of true experience. They speak of how life is, the spiritual battle we face... And it is not speaking about what we would often like to think about, does it? It tells things as they are, as we need to see. We see many topics in the Psalms that can be unpleasant to even think about. But we know in our Christian walk, we go through these things. Things happening around us so that when we sing the Psalms, they get us through difficult and often horrible times, trying times, so that we keep going. And the the singing of the Psalms, whether in home, in family worship, or alone before the Lord, or here among God's people, they strengthen us and they grip us to keep going, to get us through through all the emotions of this spiritual war in which we face. That war that goes back thousands of years. A war, like any war, has suffering. Casualties. Winners. Losers. But this war continues to be fought today. It has not reached its final conclusion. But there is a clear and certain victor. There is a winner of this war. In the situation between Ukraine and Russia, we don't know what the future holds, do we? The the Lord knows. And we pray, and as we should, we pray for peace We pray for the situation there. We pray for Christians who are displaced and left from their homes. But we do know the end of this war that the scriptures speak of. We do know of the victor. We do know how it all will end. Between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. We know the final result. We know he will bring final and lasting peace like nothing else ever will. Even when there is peace on this earth, it's temporary. It's what for a short time. But the peace that the Prince of Peace will bring in one day will be final, lasting, and eternal. So Christians, believers in Jesus Christ, we all have a message for the world. We have a message of peace. One that brings people to adore the victor. To bring right 
prays to the victor, seeing that his kingdom will endure forever and ever. So number one, we're going to look at these eight verses in Psalm 9, then later on this evening we're going to look at the rest of Psalm 9 as well. But the first point we're going to look at in Psalm 9, from verses 1 and 2, is adoration. Adoration for the victor. Adoration for the victor. If any of you follows sports, or you have a favorite team, and your team wins a trophy, what do you do? You celebrate. There's a lot of excitement. There's even praise and celebration and an outpouring of joy and gladness. It says here in our text, verses 1 and 2, I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. I will tell of all your marvelous works. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. But imagine if before your team had even won anything, you are celebrating. You're celebrating as if it had already been finished and over. In sports, you might, people might think they're being very arrogant and preparing themselves for the fall. But we know with full certainty how this is going to end. The victory purchased because of Jesus Christ. And as certain as his resurrection was. As certain as all his enemies. And there will be victory accomplished by him. So because of this, we can boast in God's works. And we can sing praises of all of them. Speaking of them as if they've already been done. We can do this in only one situation in our life on this earth with Christ. Because they are certainly going to happen. In verses 1 and 2 there is a confidence of praise because victory is certain. The, the, those who stand against it have no chance. It is assured this victory is one who will be the victor. Spurgeon wrote this on this verse. Here... The overthrow of the foe is viewed as complete. And the song flows with sacred fullness of delight. It's viewed as complete. And the song flows with sacred fullness of delight. Many who attempt in the world to have their own great empire are not worthy of anything close to this type of praise. Of this form of adoration and praise. They're just not worthy of it. Many, they should not be admired at all. They take what does not belong to them. All the while causing great Suffering. And that's what tyrants, 
And oppressive leaders throughout the centuries have done. They've taken things that they believe belongs to them. And it really doesn't. And they believe that they're worthy of all the praise, all the honor, all the glory. But this is not the case with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The true King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is worthy of all the praise. The more, the more we get to know of him, the more we see he is worthy of all praise, all honor, and all glory. Because it all belongs to him. Every inch, every centimeter of earth, it all belongs to him. And the more you know of him, the more you think, let him take it all. Let him have it all. That's why the more you see this, and the more he commands of you, perhaps to let it set aside for his kingdom, the more he asks you to suffer for his name, the more easier it becomes. Because you see he is worthy of all these things. It says in Psalm 24 verse 1, The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. The world and those who dwell therein. It all belongs to him. Everything. It all belongs to him. So that when we see this victor taking what truly belongs to him, what he has created, what he sustains through his power, through his might, we praise him. We adore Him. We admire Him. And we are in absolute awe of Him. When others do the same thing, we don't, nor should we, because it doesn't belong to them. And in verse 1 of our text here in Psalm 9, it's a response of the heart to seeing The wonderfulness of God. The response of the heart that wishes to worship him. It says, uh, David, the, the psalmist, writes, I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. He's not going through the motions. He's not distracted. He's doing it with all of his heart. And for this to be true, we need to know more of him and more of his works and to be in awe of these things. And when you see his works, you see that victory is assured. And you see where victory comes from. And you see the only source of victory. So often in wars, people often are confused and they're scratching their heads and they wonder... Why did that happen? You know, if you go through the history of World War II or World War I, you, you think, well, why did they invade there? That doesn't make any sense. You're left scratching your heads. Why did this leader invade that country? We're, everybody's asking this question this week, aren't they? Well, why did Putin invade Ukraine? It doesn't make any sense. It, seems, it doesn't seem like a smart move. But so often in history... People say, why? And many, many, many of the time, these leaders will say this, that belongs to me. That belongs to my kingdom. 
That belongs to our territory. The larger the kingdom, the more powerful the leader, the greater the conqueror. And the more admiration that there can even be in the pages of history. We still remember, don't we? Um, even from our Bibles as well. Cyrus, king of Persia. One of the most remembered kings in history. Alexander the Great. The Macedonian king. Or Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And we remember them because they had such big kingdoms. But none of them are worthy of the praise. The honor and the glory that is described in verses 1 and 2. The kingdom of Christ is far more impressive, far more powerful, and far more praiseworthy than any kingdom that has ever been seen on this earth. No matter how powerful, no matter how much, how much of a military might they may have, no matter how many soldiers they may have, no matter what type of weapons they may have, the kingdom of Christ is still more powerful, more praiseworthy, more worthy of adoration. So it's such a king. We can boast of him. The one thing we can boast about in this world is Christ. Of what he has done and what he will do. He will come again. And he will renew this earth. So we can praise him, praise his name. It says in verse 2, I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name. O Most High. And when we praise his name, we praise his reputation. We think of the value of a name. The name of someone. We talk of this expression to drag someone's name through the mud. We think of reputation. We praise him for what he has done. We give him all the glory. Not just for any ordinary works. But for wonders. It says in the second half of verse 1. I will tell of all your, your marvelous works. Your wonders. And this word in Hebrew kind of means this, something extraordinary. Something beyond what ordinary man can do. Make him known throughout the world. Rejoice in him. And that's what we do when we sing the Psalms. We declare, we recount the greatness of God. We, we sing to God the word of God through Christ. We, we sing the word of Christ to Christ. They declare his glory. They declare his victory. And they declare how wonderful he is. Victorious openly before a fallen world. So our second point this morning is this. Adversaries for the victor. Adversaries for the victor. So we've looked at adoration for the victor. And now we're looking at adversaries for the victor. Even though he is almighty, he is all powerful, he is all the strength and might far beyond anything we can imagine or think. Um, still, there are people 
who fight against him. Isn't that extraordinary? If you think about who God is, if you think about his greatness, his power, how he is the source of love and light and every single good thing we have, the more absurd, the more strange even sin looks, the less sense it makes at all. It says in verse 3 of our text, When my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at your sight, in your, in your presence. And in 5 and 6 it says, You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. O oh, enemy, destructions are finished forever. And you have destroyed cities. Even their memory has Perished. There's something extraordinary about all this. The fact that there are any enemies or adversaries in the first place. They are defeated before they've even set off. His victory is sure. So why would they come? Why do they fight? Why do people continue to fight? A fight they can never win. With any war, any human war, no matter how small, there's still a a glimmer of hope, isn't there? There's still something to hold on to. Even if the army is small, maybe they can carve out and, and defend something. But there's some hope. But in this war, there is no hope for the rebellious army. No hope at all. They have no chance of victory. They have no chance of even a slither of victory. They are fallen in Adam. And that sin in Adam, Adam's sin, has condemned the entire human race. Every single person. No matter how rich you are or how poor you are. No matter how difficult your life was or how easy your life is. This sin affects every single one of us. It affects the the tyrant in another nation and it affects your nice neighbor who you think very highly of. Every single person is under the condemnation of the sin until they're in the second Adam. That is Jesus Christ. So the more we we see God, the more we see of this war, the more the stranger it should look to us. That there's anyone who would dare oppose his might, who would dare oppose his power. And the more we should hate and loathe sin ourselves and just see it as absolutely absurd to go against what God wants because his ways are better than ours. And it can also seem strange to us and hard for us to get our heads around the fact that there is anyone out there who is actively at war with God. This can be a hard thing for us to grasp, depending on our background, and depending perhaps on when the Lord led us to salvation. But listen to the words of Jesus as he spoke to outwardly religious people of his day. In John 8.44 it says this, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and he does not stand in the truth and there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks 
from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. He tells these people they think they're fine. And actually everybody else thinks they're great too. Openly religious Pharisees and teachers. You are of your father, the devil. It is hard for us to see sometimes that there's enemies. There are enemies. And also people who will wish to do us harm. Now, perhaps as our society changes, we see this more and more, don't we? We see um, for the last couple of years the Asher's Bakery case. Something that's astonishing that it has taken place. But why are there people out there who wish to do us harm? Because we follow Christ. It says in John 15, verses 18 and 19, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of this, the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And it's generally people who have had friends in the world, they've been converted, I was converted at the age of 24, and there were people whose views of me drastically changed after I came to Christ. And they hated me because they hated Christ. And the thing is, we all hate God until we come to God. Every single last one of us. I remember years ago, I was sharing my testimony with somebody. I think it was saved about six months. And I said... I hated God. But they didn't really want to hear that. And they were like, no, 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 no. You just didn't really understand what, you were, what was going on. No, no, I knew I hated God. Until the point I saw that God was good. And he was loving. And he was kind. And he was forgiving. And he was everything. I had a caricature, I suppose, in my head. But I still hated the true and living God. It's very hard for us to wrap our minds around that. I went from hating God to loving God. I went from hating Christ to loving him. Because he'd given me a new heart. A new nature to love him and to cherish him and to adore him. From being an enemy and an adversary of the victor of this war. To being a friend. To joining with his army by faith in the son of God. Enemies of the victory of the victor will perish. When my enemies turn back, verse 3, they shall fall and perish at your presence. They can't stand before the, the holiness of God. There's one sense in which, of course, it is sad. We wish that more people come to know Christ. We, you know, the only thing that makes us different from those people who don't come to church, who don't love the Bible, who don't love Christ, is this. God's mercy. God's pity, God's grace. I am far worse than many of the people who don't come to church and don't love God. But he showed pity upon a sinner such as I. It is sad in one sense we want them to come to know God, but yet we praise him for he will be victorious over every single enemy that fights against them. And we should pray for enemies to be turned to him. From rebellion 
to repentance unto life. From destruction that awaits the nations to salvation. And lovingly warn those who are on the wide road to destruction. It will end badly for you. Those outside of Christ. That's what it means by the nations. When it talks about you have rebuked the nations. Israel was the only nation on earth at that time who followed God. This was the visible church. And the nations, the Gentiles were all those unbelievers. The heathen outside of the church. Many of us don't like rebuke and confrontation. It's one of the reasons I think that sharing the gospel can be hard. To tell someone that they're a sinner. That they deserve death. That's a, that's a hard thing. To, and we need the strength of God in order to be able to do it. None of us like to be corrected. Uh, none of us... Um, I often think of the fear of almost like getting bad exam results. We don't like to be judged, do we? But here is a rebuke. It says in verse 5, you have rebuked the nations. None of us like rebuke even of the smallest kind. But imagine the terror of this rebuke. Of the nations. Of all those outside of Christ. This is why we come trembling before him. This is why we rejoice in his blessings. Because of what we have all been delivered from. And brought into a relationship. A saving relationship with that certain victor. Number three now. We're going to look at advantage of the victor. Advantage of the victor. So we've looked at adoration of the victor. Adversaries of the victor. And advantage of the victor. We have to ask ourselves as well, why will God win? Why will God win? Even though he's got all these enemies fighting against him, seeking to to establish their own kingdom and their own power and their own glory, why will he win? Verse 4, for you have maintained my right and my cause. You sat on the throne judging in righteousness. God is in his throne, far greater than any earthly throne. Far more powerful. In in the sport of boxing, there are various different weight classes. You have heavyweights, you've got middleweights, and then you've got lightweights. And why do they, in that sport, divide them all up into different weight categories? Well, if you have a heavyweight... Fighting against the lightweight, there's a huge advantage. Some might call it a mismatch. It's not something people want to watch. It's going to be the difference in power is massive. When the enemies of God come against him, when the enemies of God come against him, there's a far greater mismatch than that when we cannot measure any other mismatch you see like in sports and in activities or anything else you cannot measure but with this mismatch 
that you can't even measure it. The, the, the enemies of God perish before him because of his power and of his greatness. They come into the greatness of God. They come into the presence before his face, literally. And they cannot stand his glory. In this war, there is another sense also shown where God is superior. So he's, in his power and his glory, far greater Far greater. This is why he will win. But also God is morally superior. Morally superior. Another way of saying that. He always does what is right. He always does what is right. And this is something I've heard a lot this week. Or this past week. In regards to what is happening in Eastern Europe. What do I mean? The sense of, and this is something that probably goes back a long time, the West, be that United States, Britain, we could come with a sense of, you could say, superiority that perhaps doing things better, of course never perfect, but that superiority in, in the sense of it was freedom versus tyranny or something like that. But over the last few decades, in recent times, there's been a moral decline. Abortion, the rise of the LGBT movement, and other things. The weakening of the family, the weakening of marriages. It has weakened the... Many people around the world, when they see us coming and say, that is wrong... Well, it weakens our argument, doesn't it? A lot of people, and this is what they say in Russia, I'm not saying that they're right, but to say, well, what about this that you're doing? Weakened in the eyes of the rest of the world. Or another way of saying it is this. If we do not practice what we preach, if we do not do what we, what we condemn others for doing, then it weakens what we're saying. It weakens resilience from within. And this can happen within armies and military. If they don't believe what they're going out and fighting for and dying for, it's very hard to keep going. It gives the enemies ammo of, well, you say that, but look what you're doing. But with God, He does everything right. We even think about parenting. If, if your parents, when you were growing up, told you to do something, but you saw that they didn't do it themselves, it weakens the argument. But God comes from a position of righteousness, perfect righteousness. He comes with that power. He administers righteousness. He sits on a throne in righteousness. It says in verse... You have rebuked the nations. And then it talks in verse 8. He shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. His rule, his reign is perfection. And from that and for other reasons, they cannot win. 
It is true and right. And God cannot deny himself. And the question before we go into our last point is this. Are you on the side of the victor? Of victors? The king of kings. The judge of judges. The ruler of rulers. The king of kings. Because there's only two sides in this war. We are either represented by Adam. In Adam all die, but in Christ all should be made alive. Or we have faith in Jesus Christ and we've turned from our sin. Our final point. Number four, advancement of the victor. Advancement of the victor. Because he's superior, his kingdom will advance with power. His kingdom will not crumble from within. He will endure. Verse 5 and 7 and 8. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. Verse 7. But the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness. And he shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. When we turn on our televisions and we see the horror of various things, the bad news, whatever it is, it is the fruits of a fallen world. It is the fruits of this war, the spiritual war taking place. It is the fruits of the curse of God upon a fallen world. Those who wish to, to advance a kingdom through unrighteousness cannot. They may do so for a period of time. Empires come and go. They rise and they fall. But only as much as God allows them to. They will flee before the king. And as he defeats his enemies. Putting them all under his feet. Then and only then is there peace. The more this gospel of peace in Jesus Christ goes forward, the more there'll be peace on this earth. And we won't have perfect peace until the King of Glory comes back and brings in a new heaven and a new earth. But the reign of God, the reign of God in our hearts as well, brings peace. But the enemy opposes this. In the New Testament, it, it describes the advancement of this kingdom, of this great and mighty victor. He says, this is what Jesus said, and he said, To what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till all leavened. Now here, leaven does not mean sin. Often in the Bible, leaven is a, is a representation of sin. But here it is likened to the kingdom of God. This is the kingdom of God spreading and growing till all were leavened. Going forth, being victorious through the gospel. The kingdom spreads. Daniel, in Daniel chapter 2, also describes the advancement and the growth forward of this kingdom. This kingdom described as a rock cut without hands, a stone cut without hands. Destroying that Babylonian system. And it writes here, 
you watch while a stone was cut without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Verse 35 of verse of chapter 2. Then the iron, the clay, and the bronze and silver and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. The kingdom advances. And that Babylonian system will one day in the future be destroyed. And the kingdom will advance and bring greater peace on the earth. The victor is victorious. He advances, conquering. And not conquering in a way that we would think of a conqueror. But conquering in the way of the Lamb of God. It says here, the last enemy that will, as the kingdom advances, the last enemy that will be put under his feet is death. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 25 and 26. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. And until that time, as long as there's death around, the kingdom will advance. Yes, it may look like at times in the church and in church life that we have taken a step backwards. And at times it may be two steps forward, one step back. Various different things. But if you compare the number of Christians in the world today compared to the first century, there's many more. There are, how many Christians are there in China? The kingdom advances Even though we may not see it, even though we may not know of its advance around the world, it continues to advance. And it will advance until the final enemy, death, is put under his feet. And why is this so important, friends? Why is it so important as believers in Jesus Christ that we go forward with with a message of victory? Because if we don't, we're less likely to share that message. If if we don't think a weapon, the sword of the Lord, will bring us victory, we won't use it. It is the greatest victory, it is the greatest weapon that we have in this fight. The word of God. And how can the church advance in our day? Through the mighty gospel and the message of this great victor. The one who administers just judgment. Verse 8 once again. He shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall administer judgment for the peoples of uprightness. His reign will not crumble from within like all other empires have. If you go back throughout history. You look at various reigns like the Roman Empire. They crumbled from within. Through corruption and other things. His kingdom will not crumble from it. It will go forth with mighty power and it will conquer through the gospel, bringing peace to all who come to him. And don't we need this today? The world is wondering, is peace possible? Yes, it is. But it only comes through the victor. It only comes through Christ. And without Christ, there is no possibility of peace. Ever. 
We may have brief moments of it in this world. But without the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Prince of Peace himself, you cannot have peace. You cannot have peace where it matters with God. Come, if you do not know him, come and have peace today. That the Lord's face may shine upon you. Amen.